Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This show is radio's answer to culinary conversation and inspiration. I'm all about the culture of food and living the best life. And so we celebrate food and its ability to feed your soul. I talk about recipes, mixology, wine, trends, travel, health, the environment, and more. And whether you love to cook or love to eat, I like to say we should definitely be friends, but you are bound to find something that you will love on this program. You'll find me here every weekend across the country, and I hope that you'll visit chefjamie.com for my features and recipes and cooking videos, that you'll take your cooking skills to the next level by becoming a fan and a friend on social at Chef Jamie Gwen, and that you'll tune in every weekend, of course, where I heat up your radio with grand guests and chef's tips to make your dishes come alive with flavor. And isn't this the time? Because... The holidays are quickly approaching, so let me satiate your appetite and let you know what is on your plate, or let me set the table for you this hour. Coming up, we are crafting some cocktails with the critically acclaimed authors of Be Your Own Bartender. Remember that bestseller? Well, they have a new book release called Every Cocktail Has a Twist, Carrie Jones and John McCarthy are here, and it is not merely a book, I will tell you. This is a deep dive into a world of new flavor combinations. So if you are the mixologist at your home bar, well, then it will become a breeze to be a masterful one. You're going to want to hear all about their innovative ideas to take classic cocktails to a whole new level. And they're fabulous. So please stay tuned. Also, she was a trailblazer 25 years ago, 50 locations later. It's a celebration of Neater's Bakery. And if you know it, then you love it. And I am delighted that Colleen Worthington is stopping by so that we can celebrate her. But first... I like to kick off the show with a tutorial of sorts. You know that. It's my goal to make you the best cook you know. And last week, we dished on Parmesan cheese, more specifically, uh, Grana Padano, the king or grandfather of Parmesan, and every use for Parmesan and the rind, which led me to a conversation on risotto. And you can always email me with your conversation requests. Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com will get you to me. But this was requested. So we're making risotto. I happen to love risotto. There's something very like warm and comforting and just satiating, I think, about risotto. And tis the season because as the weather cools, that comfort food craving is definitely satisfied by a big bowl of beautiful creamy rice. And I think it acts as the base, as a perfect template for the addition of lots of wonderful things. It can be gloriously vegetarian, or it can be topped with uh, beautiful seafood, specifically scallops and risotto. I think that's a gorgeous combination. 
but you can really go in with just about anything. Um, I love a duck confit leg over risotto because there's something about that just absolute indulgence. But let's get back to the basics, shall we? Risotto is a traditionally Northern Italian dish, one of the most common ways of cooking rice in Italy. And it originated specifically in Eastern Piedmont, uh, Western Lombardy, and Veneto, where the rice patties are abundant. And it is one of the pillars of Milanese cuisine. And it always impresses guests. It just does. Now, when you buy rice to make risotto, there are three most popular grains of risotto rice. There is arborio, which is the most popular, right? It's large and rounded. It has a a lovely creamy texture. There is carnaroli, which is a more elegant grain, I think. It's a little longer. Um, It holds its shape when it's completely cooked. And it's a very good choice if you find your risotto always turns a little mushy. So if you tend to overcook risotto or from a chef's perspective, if you want to hold risotto, as we call it, let's say you want to make it three quarters of the way when your friends and family arrive, you finish it. And I'll give you a trick, by the way, for a full make ahead. Uh, But carnaroli is the best choice here because um, you can hold it without it overcooking and the rice grain still keeps its composure, its shape. And then there is the creamiest, smoothest, most beautifully textured risotto, in my opinion. And that is made with Violone Nano. And it is now available in the U.S. It was only available in Italy for some time. And it was what I would pack my suitcase with when I came back. Um, But it is the most delicious risotto rice. It's the most costly as well. But if you're, you know, pulling out all the stops for a holiday meal, please buy Violone Nano and make glorious risotto. Now, I'll give you that make ahead in just a moment. But let's talk about the standard method of risotto, right? All risotti as the Italians say, the plural for risotto, are made following this basic procedure. You can make your own minor variations, but you begin by heating your stock or your broth in a saucepan until it's just simmering because the secret to a great risotto is adding hot stock. Now, you saute some shallot in olive oil and unsalted butter, in my opinion. A good Italian will tell you there's no butter here. Um, but I think butter makes everything better. And then at this point, you'd add any additional ingredients you want, like mushrooms or pumpkin or butternut squash. And you want to make sure that you toast that rice so that you bring out the aroma so that you coat each grain or granule with the fat. And then you add some of that dry white wine that you've been sipping from the bottle because you had to open it. And then you continue to add simmering broth about a half a cup or so at a time. And you cook stirring often until the liquid is absorbed, till you add another addition of broth. And as it absorbs it, the rice reaches that al dente stage, right? Now, this is when I add cheese and a couple more tablespoons of butter. I adjust my seasoning and I take it straight to the table. Now, 
If you want a make ahead, this is an, a restaurant tip or a restaurant hack that we used to do when I was working in professional kitchens a long time ago, but you can actually make the risotto to about um, the 50% cooked mark. And then you can take it out of the pot and put it onto a sheet pan and spread it in a thin layer and get it in the fridge. It stops the cooking process and it allows you to even start that risotto the day before or a day ahead. And then when you're ready to finish the risotto, if you don't want to make it start to finish with family and friends or you don't have the time, let's say, then you put that cold risotto back in a pot, you bring it up just to warm and you start adding hot stock again. It is a great make ahead. Now, if you soak dried mushrooms to make a mushroom risotto, use that soaking liquid in your risotto for fabulous flavor. And no matter what liquid you're using, um, please make sure it is hot so that you get rich, creamy, beautiful grains of rice. Now, if you want a shortcut, here it is. I make a pressure cooker pumpkin risotto in 15 minutes. I call that 15 minutes to heaven. And the pressure cooker does all the work and it's actually quite delicious. Talk about a hack. And I will gladly email you the recipe. It's not actually posted at chefjamie.com at the moment, but I will happily send it to you. Email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. All right, coming up, cocktail conversation. And listen here, there's some food news you could use. We're going to talk about Bloody Marys, but guess what I found out this week? I found out that the Worcestershire sauce we all love, that's the company Liam Perrins, right? They just came out with a Bloody Mary mix. So if you love the savory stuff that is Worcestershire sauce, or as some people say, Worcestershire, well, then I'll tell you, it's vinegar-based, it's got brilliant umami, and I understand that this Bloody Mary mix is quite spectacular. So search the internet, check it out, and let me know. But don't touch your dial. Stay tuned. There is lots more fabulous food in your radio when we come back. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Grab a glass. We're pouring a cocktail or more because Carrie Jones and John McCarthy are highly lauded and trusted mixologists in the cocktail world. They're also a husband and wife cocktail team. And their new release, Every Cocktail Has a Twist, is getting rave reviews. You see, they are the best-selling authors of Be Your Own Bartender. Remember that fabulous book? And Carrie was the managing editor of Serious Eats. John is a mixologist and spirits writer and has been seen everywhere from GMA to the Wall Street Journal. Now, the best compliments they're receiving I will tell you, say this, they are ingenious, 
mixologists that can create a cocktail for every occasion, but they're entertaining, exacting, and delightfully unfussy. And I could not think of a better compliment than that. So with the holidays quickly approaching, find your favorite cocktail and make it better. That's what every cocktail has a twist is all about. And Carrie and John are here to dish. And I'm delighted. Cheers to you both. Congratulations. The new book is fabulous. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yes, of course. Uh, Okay. So second book uh, in the books, I should say. And it starts off and, and not to challenge you, but I'd love for each of you to give your opinion, your philosophy. It starts off first line in the introduction. I've read it cover to cover, by the way. Uh, you say, and I quote, craft cocktails. You can find them everywhere. And isn't that true, right? I mean, the cocktail world has, has really elevated, but what defines a craft cocktail today? That's a good question. I think that there are two things. There's the idea of taking cocktails kind of seriously as an endeavor. I think that, you know, when we think of craft cocktails today, what it was a reaction to is all those bright orange, bright green, teeny drinks of the um, of the 90s and early aughts, the ones that were all sugar and mostly sugar just to hide poor quality booze. So there was kind of that. We, we call it a dark ages of cocktails. Um, <laughs> And then as you get to the, to the mid-aughts, um, people just started paying a lot of attention to um, the history of cocktails, to mm-hmm. what a cocktail could be. And I think that the idea of just a- approaching cocktails as a craft um, really took off then. I, I think that like uh, any trend, it can kind of go a little too far. Like when chain restaurants are saying that they have craft cocktails, you're like, that, that really yeah, not really. Anymore, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, sophisticated, sophisticated cocktails that pay attention to ingredients is what I would say a craft cocktail is. Oh, I like that definition. And John, you believe, along with Carrie, and in the making of your second award-winning book now, that you can be a superb home bartender and create craft cocktails. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and it, it goes to using the real ingredients um, and, you know, the, the resurgence of the cocktail world was all going back and reading the books dating bef- back before Prohibition and relearning what, as Americans, we used to know how to do um, and finding what those ingredients were and how they were made and then putting them into practice. And it really is all about the steps. I'll tell you, and and I love to mix an old-fashioned at home, and I'm a vodka girl through and through, but I find if I want to be really, truly accurate and exacting, and I measure everything with a jigger, and I'm, I'm proper about it, I should say, I do make the ultimate version of that cocktail. Yeah, Absolutely. You think of it as like uh, baking. Yes, you know, uh, the, the chemistry recipe. of follow it. Follow the recipe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that um, I think baking's a, a great analogy. That you know the the ingredient list might look short, the steps might look basic, but if you do pay attention to just kind of the basics of technique, um, you can make a, a much more impressive drink. 
I agree. So if we could go through some steps to better cocktails, please. Um, you do say invest in the right bottles, and, and I'm all for that. From a professional chef standpoint, I would really appreciate you buy the best Parmesan cheese you can because it's going to make my recipe that includes Parmesan cheese taste that much better. Same rule applies Absolutely. to liquor, right? Exactly. Absolutely. And the best spirits do not have to be wildly expensive. I mean, they're, you know... You can you can get a great mixing bourbon for twenty dollars, mm-hmm. and you could get a great sipping bourbon for five hundred. But you you really don't need that for for a cocktail. Um, but you know, buying buying spirits that kind of taste like what they're supposed to, I would say, mm-hmm. and then also using fresh ingredients in other places, such as fresh juices. Um, those just make an immeasurable difference. Just like that Parmesan, you don't you don't want the American knockoff. Right, the green uh, container, crazy, right. Crazy no, exactly. 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 Um, you also talk about knowing what to refrigerate. And if I were to venture to guess, I would tell you that the home bartender could elevate simply by knowing what needs to be refrigerated. That, that, that would make a really big difference at a home bar. And it really goes to the, um, the alcohol by volume, the proof of what you're working with. So if you're using um, uh, vermouth, in particular, um, they're, they're a fortified wine with herbs and botanicals that they will um, deteriorate. And so you refrigerate them to keep their life longer. If you just open up your uh, vermouth and then keep it under the sink, it's mm-hmm. not going to last you that long. But if you keep it refrigerated, it's going to last you uh, qu- quite some time. As well, that goes uh, as well for bitters. Um, and certain, um, even some liqueurs, if, they're, if their ABV is low enough, you'll get a longer lifespan if you keep it refrigerated. I found that fascinating. I want you both to know that I got to page 17 and then walked to my living room and put my bitters in the fridge. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I, did. I did. And and I put the Lillet in the fridge as well. Exactly. Anything wine-based. And um, as John said, where the conversation really comes up the most is vermouth because it's, it's such a um, key ingredient in mm-hmm. several classics. And a lot of people think they don't like it. And that's because they've had a sip from a dusty bottle that's been sitting on a shelf for four years. And if you, you know, if you opened a nice Savion Blanc and then stuck it on the shelf for four years, it's going to taste pretty rancid. Um, no and so anything wine-based in particular, um, it's really important to, to take that care with. Thank you. That's, a, that's really good insight. Um, I love, too, that included in the basic steps for a masterful cocktail, um, you say ice is an ingredient um, this country, and I'm not sh- as sure about abroad, and you both travel extensively to taste cocktails. Such a hard life. Um, but I wonder if ice is having its moment everywhere, um, because ice does matter. Would you elaborate, please? Ice does matter. Um, it matters in, it's one of the main, it's the main ingredient in every cocktail. Um, oh. And your dilution of the ice is... When you stir a drink and when you shake a drink, um, typically that ice melt will equal about an ounce of water that's added to your drink, hmm. which is going to open up all the flavors, give it new ounce, um, give it subtlety. And without it, you've, we've all been to the bar where we had uh, a sipping drink served over the big ice cube, and it just tastes so overpowering. Uh, and, like, the drink is too tight, and you have to wait a really long time for that ice cube to dilute and because it didn't get stirred uh, long enough to get 
the dilution to happen. Okay, we'll take a quick break here. If you both would pause, the dynamic duo is here. Carrie Jones, John McCarthy. The book, Every Cocktail Has a Twist. So we're going to stir it up more right after this. We're back and we're dishing Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the mixology adventure continues. Authors Carrie Jones and John McCarthy are here. The book Every Cocktail has a twist. They are the critically acclaimed authors of Be Your Own Bartender. And we're talking the traditional to the exquisite when it comes to craft drinks. Right. So you have to know when to use crushed and when to use the block. Right. But the, right. the quality right. of that ice matters too. Um, so Absolutely. we see the clarity of says, ice. Right. Yeah. If, you're, if your ice has been sitting in the freezer for two years, it's probably <laughs> going to taste like everything that's been sitting in the freezer for yeah. two years. Yeah. New fresh ice for the holiday season, please. New, um, new, you know, and you, and you can get great quality party ice down at the store. Yeah, you can. I agree. Um, And Carrie, leave us with this before we um, delve deep into cocktails. But I love that you both say no wimpy shakes and no short stirs. This kind of lends itself to, um, I believe that you should use your appliances, right? So if you're going to run your blender, run your blender, let it run um, and and, and aerate and create viscosity or, you know, some beautiful smooth soup or whatever it is. But the same rule applies to bartending. And that is, you know, one stir around the glass is not enough. Exactly. Um, and stirring or shaking accomplishes a few things. Um, one of them is chilling the drink down. Obviously, no one, with the exception of a hot toddy, no one wants a warm drink. Um <laughs> But shaking really enlivens the drink. It aerates it. It brings all of its elements together. Um, one funny thing is to sit in a bar or restaurant with John, and you can always tell that one part of his brain is listening for how a bartender shakes because he'll, <laughs> he'll know if it's a good shake or not just by listening. I, I can um, tell if I want to have that drink or not because if the shake doesn't sound right, I'll pass. I'll have a glass of wine. <laughs> that's amazing. And, and, that's not to, and that's not to be snobby. It's just that um, really putting energy into that shake is what is what brings the cocktail all together and kind of takes it from just some ingredients in a glass to the cocktail that we love. Right. John, you have, teaching you have good ears. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm teaching new bartenders, I'll, I'll teach them, you know, to, you know, bend their knees, take a breath, and then shake it like you've never shook it before and that mm. everybody has their own shake just like everybody has their own dance and that you're imbuing the cocktail with life. And if you don't shake it properly, you're handing somebody a dead drink and nobody wants that. No. And I know you guys live far from where I live, but I'll make you proud and I'll shake later and you'll know that it was a worthy cocktail. (laughs) Okay. All right. Good. Good. Um, First, if we could, could we please toast with a Bloody Mary? I don't know why the, I I think because the holiday season is um, brunch oriented to me, right? Family brunch uh, Thanksgiving Day, the holidays where everyone gathers. I think Bloody Mary, um, but you've taken the Bloody Mary to a whole new level. Absolutely. Um, what we tried to do with all of the drinks in this book is really look at 
the essence of the drink, like what is a Bloody Mary, and then get a little creative from there. Um, because you can go to, you know, if we're talking about brunch, you can go to um, fancy restaurants with brunch menus and have Bloody Mary drinks that are clarified or mostly carrot juice. And it's like, well, is that what we want from a Bloody Mary? So we think of that tomato base. We think of the bold flavors of um, peppercorn and horseradish. Um, but from there, we really branch out. Um, and all throughout this book, we try to do some drinks um, that are flavor-based and some drinks that are just fun and some that are really simple. And so one of our absolute favorite drinks from this book um, is a four-ingredient Bloody Mary. And our, our traditional recipe has something like 15 ingredients. And they're, they're all important, the celery salt, the Worcestershire, all of that. Um, but this recipe basically uses uh, Old Bay as a shortcut through that. Um, and it's absolutely delicious. Do you think the, the cobbler is coming back, John? I have seen the word itself, the drink itself on menus of late. And I was delighted to see that you have um, a chapter dedicated to cobblers. There's something beautifully lovely about, uh, I love crushed ice, but just about the flavor combinations, I think, that make up a cobbler. One of the things that we love about, well, we love sherry. Um, yes. And sherry is where the cobbler started. And um, you can get so much nuance and different flavor from the different sherries and the different styles of sherries. Mm. So then making a cobbler out of it, it's just so, I mean, and the original cobbler, it's, you know, it's, it's sherry and, and some orange. And you muddle it together and then fill it with crushed ice. And, I mean, it's the drink that invented the straw. It used to be, you know, considered, like, old-fashioned air conditioning before there was air conditioning. (laughs) This is how you cool down in the summer. Um, And, you know, uh, and I'm Southern, so it's, uh, I just love, I just love it. The more ice, the better. Yes, I have to agree with you. Um, I love all of the chapter uh, topics. I mean, you dig deep into a Negroni, you talk Pim's cups and sangrias. These are selfishly all of my favorites. Um, gimlets and hot toddies too. But with the holidays quickly approaching, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to please talk about eggnog. I'm sure you, and I know from reading have illustrious ways to use it. I think the outside of a cocktail, I think the best use for eggnog is French toast because it's essentially built in custard, right? Um, But it does make a fabulous cocktail. Absolutely. Um, And it's one of those drinks that's just so iconic, you almost can't imagine a holiday season without it. Um, And our mission is that once people understand how easy it is to make homemade eggnog, they won't rely on the store-bought stuff again. Yes. Um, And we have two methods to make it. One is sort of very classic and very lovely. It involves separating the eggs, whisking them separately, and kind of folding um, the yolk component into the white very carefully, and you get this ethereally rich eggnog, and it's beautiful. It's a showstopper. Mm. You can also dump all the ingredients in the blender, pulse it, and have an absolutely fabulous eggnog. And so um, one thing we really try to do in this book is give options like that. Like mm-hmm. if, if you want to do the technical, amazing you know, beautiful silken eggnog. We have a recipe for that. And honestly, when we're entertaining family at home, we usually just pour it all in a blender and pulse it. Um, so from there, we've had a lot of fun dressing it up um, in classic ways like bourbon and brandy, but also some really offbeat ways. Um, we have a banana foster eggnog. I um, saw kind that. Of based off that classic dessert. Yeah. It that's looks a, that's a real so good. That's like dessert in a glass. It, it is. Absolutely. And one thing we um, love to 
let people know, too, is that once you've added the alcohol to the eggnog, you can age it. Um, and aged eggnog uh, really becomes something special. Two more drinks before I let you go. The Sazerac having a bit of a resurgence. I love that you say it is not for novices, right? It's the drinker's drink. Mm-hmm. And it it has lots of possibilities, though. Absolutely. Um, this is one. The Sazerac's a really interesting drink. It is, it is bold with the flavors of rye and bitters, and it's something... You know, you, you don't just slurp down a Sazerac. No. You, kind of, you, you sit with it. You contemplate it. Um, and so when we were looking to do variations on it, we wanted to find different drinks that had that power, but also the nuance that you get from the different bitters. So we have all kinds of unusual ingredients. Um, we have one with chartreuse. We have one with a rich banana liqueur. Um, we get sherry in there because we always like sherry, but... Um, that was a chapter where we really um, kind of wanted to get into the, the nuances of the drink and how to play around with those flavors. This is really a, a beautifully thoughtful, mindful, dedicated cocktail book. And while your first was a, deservedly so a huge success, this is a, a whole nother level of taking classic drinks to that craft level with 200 variations and 25 classic drinks, Carrie Jones and John McCarthy uh, have done it again. The book is entitled Every Cocktail Has a Twist. And for the cocktail lover in your life or for your own home bar or for a stocking stuffer or, you know, for anyone who really appreciates the beauty of a well-mixed, well-designed cocktail, this is a must-read. The book is really well done, so congratulations to you both. From the hearty Bloody Mary to the sophisticated Manhattan, um, they're all reimagined with a unique twist, and then the best of the basic drink is there too, so your taste buds will no doubt be enthralled. Congratulations to both of you. Thank you for sharing your cocktail passion uh, and for uh, elevating our drinks that I truly appreciate. I know, Carrie, we can follow you for updates and book info and all that good stuff on social media. It's under Carrie underscore Jones, right? C-A-R-E-Y underscore Jones. Yes, on Instagram. That's where you'll get all kinds of info about promotions, media, events, things like that. Love it. Fabulous. And uh, John, you're just along for the ride. You're listening to the shaking when it comes to social <laughs> uh, media, yeah, right? I'm making drinks. Yeah. Okay, I'm good. The drinks. I like that about you. I definitely do. <laughs> um, every cocktail has a twist out now. Thank you both once again. Happy holidays to you and cheers. Cheers. Thank you so Thanks much. So much. Thank you. Happy holidays. Such a pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, now I'm thirsty. Okay, grab a snack. Come on back. There's lots more fabulous food, wine, and spirits in your radio, Chef Jamie. Gwen back after this. Life, create, and savor yours. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Because a meal or a beautiful loaf of bread is a terrible thing to waste. And because I love a success story, wait till you hear this. 
What began in Colleen Worthington's kitchen a little more than 25 years ago has grown into an incredibly successful family-owned and run bakery and cafe business. And it's the recipes and not only the breads, but their glorious soups and the cookies and the pies that are beloved by so many that are being shared for the first time in a one-of-a-kind cookbook. Colleen rolled up her sleeves along with her husband, Gary, and they learned themselves to make traditional European bread in their kitchen. After mastering the art of bread, they built a team of bakers and began opening beautiful cafes and bakeries. And today they have 50 locations. Their first Neater's Bakery opened in Utah in 1997. And as mentioned, 25 years later, Neater's Bakery and Cafe has a celebration of recipes in a book that is already top rated on Amazon and beyond and much deserved acclaim. Colleen Worthington is here to share her story and I'm thrilled. Colleen, what a pleasure to meet you and kudos to you on your dedication and success. Oh, thank you, Jamie. I am really humbled to be interviewing with you today. Well, thank you kindly. Um, Okay, first we have to talk family. Um, Because I'm an only child with an only child. You have six children, 22 grandchildren, and 11 great-grandchildren. And that is a lot of bread to feed. (laughs) Well, it is. It is, especially when you consider all the spouses involved as well. Of course, no doubt. And a family, as I understand, of almost 50 that gathers. Um, you, You cook big. Um, you all eat big, and these recipes are family legacy now. And to have them compiled in a book must be um, some of the greatest joy for you, I imagine. Well, the family is all really happy about it because they said, Oh, Mom, I wanted this recipe, or Oh, Grandma, I'm so glad you put that recipe in it. So of course, I'm glad that we can give it to everyone. Yeah, for sure. And then you have so many loyal followers um, who will go to the ends of the earth for chunky cinnamon stuffed French toast. Can we talk about that, please? I'd like to just dig into the recipes because they're, they all have like a heartwarming component to them, to me. They just, they feel homey and wonderful. And this French toast looks luscious. Well, it has a great, great story behind it. My son, when we very first opened, was a student down at Brigham Young University and he lived in an apartment that didn't have a kitchen, but he lived close to mm-hmm. girls who had kitchens. Mm-hmm. And so he said, I'm going to come out and get your day-old chunky bread. So we don't sell day-old bread. So he would come out Saturday night or first thing on Sunday morning and grab the chunky bread. And then he would take it down to the apartments and go to the girls' apartments, and they would fix the chunky cinnamon French toast. His recipe has been there. It happens to be the very first recipe we use for chunky chunky cinnamon French toast at Neater's. And so it's really authentic. Hmm. But um, he he left um, to travel abroad and go on a mission for our church. And before he left, he came out and said, Mom, you know, I'm feeding about 100 people (gasps) at the apartment. Was he really? On the menu. (laughs) (laughs) That's fabulous. We did. And so you did. And the simplicity of your recipes, I think, is a testament to the fact that 
as a mother, a grandmother, a great grandmother, you're passing down these beautiful recipes that have been tweaked or perfected for mass consumption. But at the, at the root of the recipe, it's a beautiful French toast, right? It's eggs and brown right. sugar and vanilla and milk. Um, but the, the bread is what makes it. Yeah, it, it makes it absolutely wonderful. Anybody wants to try that recipe, they can go to neaters.com shop and we'll send it right to them, that chunky cinnamon bread, because it really does make the recipe. I know that there are bread lovers and kneader lovers across the country that are um, truly grateful that their favorite recipes are being shared. And it is your family legacy on these pages. The stories are, uh, they're touching um, and they're beautiful, and I think the share here is the the most extraordinary thing. Of course, the success, uh, your dedication, your passion, the work ethic, unbelievable. Um, so congratulations to you. The book is entitled Neaters. It is from Neaters Bakery and Cafe, celebrating 25 years. It is a celebration of their recipes and their memories. More than 25 years ago, Colleen Worthington rolled up her sleeves and built a baking empire. 50 locations later, they are still much beloved. And the recipes are in a top-rated, top-selling book, now available on Amazon and beyond. So for hot artichoke crab dip and three cheese cauliflower soup and pumpkin chocolate chip cookies and more, uh, please get your hands on it. Colleen, it was a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your passion. Thank you so much. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope that you thought so, and I hope at least that I fed your soul. Please tune in every weekend when you will hear lots more fabulous food in your radio so that we can toast and cheers to the holidays and so that I can arm you with a treasure trove of recipes that will make you a culinary hero come the holidays. I'll start now. How's that? This is my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration for this week. If you're feeling fancy, make a galette. It sounds extravagant, doesn't it? Actually, inspired by pears that I saw at the farmer's market this past week, uh, a galette is practically the easiest baked dessert there is. And it's very rustic, but it's very beautiful. And my version uses either homemade or store-bought pie dough, but I've already begun making pie dough for the Thanksgiving holiday, and I'm sure you have too. So, With that pie dough, you will toss pears sliced, um, preferably the Anjou or the Bartlett because I think they bake up the best, and you will slice them in the secret here, a very rich, delicious caramel sauce, and then you bake it. That's it. You need flake salt, of course, and it is a three-ingredient caramel pear galette, and it is so good, and I am posting it now on social media. On every platform, you will find me at Chef Jamie Gwen. So please check it out, make it, and let me know how your caramel pear galette turns out. I will meet you here next weekend. I thank you for listening. I hope you have a delicious week. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I do hope you continue to eat well. (laughs) 